the voting is over, but partisan battles are still raging in our country. And it appears that uh, political warfare will continue for some time to come. Against that backdrop, I thought that now would be a perfect time to talk about the notion of citizenship and what it means, and also to talk about civic education and how vital civic education is to weaving the mosaic of America into a cohesive fabric. And I can think of no one better to talk to us about these vital issues today than my longtime friend, Eric Liu. Eric is the co-founder and the CEO of an organization called Citizen University. And he also directs the Citizenship and American Identity Program at the Aspen Institute. Eric is a regular contributor to the Atlantic Magazine. And he's also the author of a number of important books. Among them, You're More Powerful Than You Think, A Citizen's Guide to Making Things Happen. And his most recent one, Become America, Civic Sermons on Love, responsibility and democracy. During the Clinton administration, Eric served as one of the president's speechwriters, and he was also his deputy domestic policy advisor. For those of you who um, have participated in the Sacred Ground Dialogue, Eric and uh, Citizen University were featured among the materials. So with that, please join me in welcoming Eric Liu. Eric, thank you, and over to you. Clark, thank you so much. It's uh, great to be with you, and uh, just a testament to old friendships and uh, uh, the ways that uh, relationships will circle back over time and uh, uh, and, and weave uh, the, the social fabric that we make together. And uh, Rob, thank you for uh, welcoming me. It's really just uh, a pleasure and an honor uh, to be with the St. John's community this morning. And uh, um, I, um, I, I wish, uh, as I'm sure we all do, that we could be gathering in person. Uh, and I think that's not only because of the fellowship and the, uh, the, the presence uh, uh, that we would feel uh, of each other in a common space, uh, but just because your common space is um, in ways both uh, obviously literal to you and uh, uh, and I think civically figurative for me, sacred. Uh, you, you are part of an institution uh, that matters. You're part of an institution whose uh, vitality and centrality uh, to the life of uh, not only DC, but our country um, has been a reality for a good long time. Uh, long before uh, you, you became uh, kind of unwillingly uh, famous uh, this summer uh, during a photo op. Uh, and I just wanna say that uh, the significance uh, of who you are and what you do as an institution um, is so is not lost upon me. Um, and when you think about uh, the ways in which I know all of you uh, wish to uh, be defined to the nation uh, beyond that photo op, uh, the only thing I'll say is, you know, there's nothing like contrast uh, and high relief between the sacred and the profane uh, to make you appreciate what you, you are trying to do. Uh, and I know the community that you all are part of uh, is indeed um, trying to build the kind of civic life uh, and to infuse the kind of sense of spirit and mutual responsibility um, that we all need more of in our country right now. Um, I, uh, by way of just introduction, um, think about my own work uh, in civics and citizenship um, in just those terms. Um, I think not in terms of um, godly religion. I was not myself raised in any uh, faith tradition, uh, but so much of the work that we do at, at Citizen University is about what you might define as American civic religion. The recognition that uh, American civic life is itself in many ways an act of faith, faith in each other, mutual faith, 
to put it very simply, democracy works only if enough of us believe democracy works. It is just that fragile and just that miraculous, this millionfold mutual agreement that this thing ought to mean something, that this thing ought to be legitimate. Uh, we are seeing painful evidence of that in the ways uh, uh, that the transition is unfolding right now at the presidential level. Uh, but we're also seeing it unfold in ways that are incredibly heartening in communities around the country, not just around the, the election that just recently ended, uh, but in the last number of years uh, where everyday citizens have been awakening, finding their voice, finding their power, recognizing that uh, as rigged as the game may seem, as broken as our systems may feel, um, that it is entirely possible to generate brand new power out of thin air through the magic act of organizing. And that organizing creates a new reality. There's a cliche that uh, probably to, to younger people is best known through the Spider-Man movies that with great power comes great responsibility. I actually think the inverse is also true. With great responsibility comes great power. And we live in an age right now where more and more people, especially young people, are learning to take responsibility for what ails the body politic. And it is the taking of responsibility that generates new power. And so this notion of democracy being something that works only if enough of us believe that it works is something that um, John Dewey put very simply. He called it democratic faith. Uh, and we at Citizen University think about this in terms of civic religion because as we all know, we are a nation bound together only by a creed. And a creed uh, in normal times, uh, you, you just look at it and you think that thing is great. Yeah, liberty and justice for all, love that. Equal justice under law. I see those words carved atop the Supreme Court. Uh, all, all people are created equal. Yes, I'm down with that. Government of and by and for the people. I've heard that before. Um, but again, in times like these that are exceptional, where our institutions are beginning to wobble, uh, where our social norms have begun to fray, uh, and where the culture itself of civic engagement um, has begun to degrade, um, you realize, again, how fragile and flimsy that creed is. And so what it takes to sustain that creed, to make uh, that creed meaningful, is it takes faith. And by faith, I don't mean, uh, uh, as again, you all know in the context uh, that you gather and worship today, I don't mean blind faith. I don't mean dogma and indoctrination. I mean a faith that is completely suffused in a wonderful welcoming way with doubt, a faith that is strong enough to encompass doubt and to say, I'm not sure I believe anymore in government of and for and by the people. I think that's a bunch of crap. I look around at the extreme levels of income inequality and wealth concentration in the United States. I look around Lafayette Square and see the people who are unhoused. I, see, I look around every community in this country in the way in which the game has seemed rigged. And I'm not sure I believe anymore. And so for us, our responsibility, those of us who choose to show up on a Sunday morning to talk about citizenship, uh, the responsibility that we face is a responsibility of spreading an ethic and an ethos that if you are willing just to take a small leap of faith and begin to show up and begin to join with others, that it is possible, in fact, to redeem our creed. It is possible, in fact, to close the great gap between our stated creed and our actual deeds in our communities and in our institutions. And that indeed the closing of that gap between creed and deed is the very definition of true patriotism. 
Patriotism is not chest thumping, we're number one-ism, jingoism. True patriotism is a relentless closing of that gap. As Carl Schurz, a German immigrant of the 1840s, a Union Army general, uh, and then later a United States Senator uh, from Missouri said during a time, uh, his time, a century and, a, uh, and change ago, his time of nativism and hypernationalism and polarization and great inequality, uh, a time when back then tin pot jingoists were talking about making America great again. And he talked about uh, on the Senate floor that true patriotism was not my country right or wrong. True patriotism is my country when right to be kept right, when wrong to be set right. Those words of Carl Schurz ring loudly in my ears and not just because I'm the son of immigrants and I take that sense of stewardship and responsibility seriously, but because I'm not sure it's ever been put more simply or compactly when right to be kept right, when wrong to be set right. In our work at Citizen University, we operate in this context then of civic religion and democratic faith. And we define citizenship in a way that um, is, I suppose, both simple and deeply complicated. Uh, and we can often boil it down with this mock equation that goes like this, power plus character equals citizenship. Power plus character equals citizenship. And all of our programs unfold from that equation. And what I wanted to do this morning a little bit is just to unpack each part of that equation um, with some examples of things that we're doing around the country um, and things that you can be doing um, in your community and for our country. Um, and then I know we will leave time uh, for conversation and questions. Let me start with the first half of this equation, power. I think the word power in American life, even, even today, uh, is a word that makes so many of our fellow citizens uncomfortable. We don't like to name power. We don't like to talk openly about power. It seems impolite. It seems a little bit, and, and frankly, especially in an age of inequality where fewer and fewer of us, and it's probably us, I think uh, odds are if you're part of the St. John's community and congregation, you are um, on the relatively winning side of the inequality and power equation of the United States over the last 40 years. Um, it seems impolite to talk about it because it seems like you're lording it over people or it seems like you're naming this incredible disjunction between the idea that this is the land of opportunity and the reality that so many people, um, even before the pandemic, have seemed stuck and without hope. But the allergic reaction that many of us have to naming and talking about power is a dangerous thing, because what it does is it seeds the field to those who are perfectly happy to prey upon the silence and willful ignorance of the many when it comes to knowing and understanding power. One of the first responsibilities we have in civic life is to be fluent in power and then to circulate our fluency. And I use this metaphor of fluency and literacy actually not as metaphor, because I think power is a language. We speak power. We learn to speak power. We learn to understand what power is, who has it, who does not have it, where it arises from, and why that is. And intuitively, we understand that there is there are sources of power that run the gamut from money power to people power, to the power of state action, the power of force and violence, the power of ideas, and the even more ineffable power of social norms. These different sources of power that flow like currents all around us. That notion of fluency and literacy and power 
is something that is so important. And in our work at Citizen University, we're working all the time to try to democratize understanding of how power works, to teach folks that there are three basic laws of power. Number one, that it's always concentrating into fewer and fewer hands. But that's the natural order of things, that the rich will get richer, the poor will get poorer. This is Matthew 25, <laughs> uh, th that among those who have, uh, shall be that those who have shall always have more, and those who have not um, shall be deprived all the more. I paraphrase, like I told you, I wasn't raised in the church, but that is a law of nature. It is a law of reality that, left to themselves, systems will lead to that kind of clumping and concentration of voice, clout, power, wealth. That's law number one. Law number two is that power justifies itself at every turn. Incumbent holders of power will spin elaborate narratives about why this is the God-given order of things, the natural way of things. And we see this not only in the increasingly desperate machinations of the current occupant of the presidency of the United States, we see this more societally in the way in which those who have been the winners in this winner-take-all economy of ours spin an elaborate narrative of trickle-down economics that we the winners, we the wealthy are, quote, job creators, capital J, capital C, just like another capital J and capital C. We are lordlike among you. Pay tribute to us. Do not tax us, literally or figuratively. Do not regulate us. Leave us be, and we will allow some of our prosperity to leak its way down to the rest of you. Now, I exaggerate for effect, but let's not kid ourselves. That trickle down narrative is all around us everywhere, among Republicans and Democrats alike. It is a narrative of pure justification. There's no economic fact or science behind that. Another narrative justification that we are grappling with in these times right now is a long-standing, deeply American narrative of not just white supremacy, but Americanness as whiteness. That whiteness is the default setting of Americanness. That those of us like me who are not white, we may or may not be welcome into American life, the terms of our welcome will be dependent upon the ways in which we adapt to whiteness itself. That too is a background narrative. And so if all you had are these first two laws of power that it's always concentrating and it's always justifying itself, you'd be stuck in a pretty grim doom loop. But what breaks us out of those two laws is law number three. Law number three, I alluded to a moment earlier, it is that power is infinite. That even in the most unequal, seemingly stuck, seemingly rigged situations, it is entirely possible to generate brand new power out of thin air through that magic act of organizing. And the act of organizing one, three, five, ten, a hundred, a thousand other people in a common endeavor, requiring common goals, common purpose, requiring compromise and the making of complexity into a sense of simple focus and common purpose, that that act generates and creates power. And again, we see evidence of that all around us in the United States today. On the left and on the right, among the folks who are organizing, uh, who organized to flip Georgia in this most recent election, and frankly, among the folks who still lead rallies to support the current president. These are people who had not yet been awakened as recently as a few months ago and are now awakened. And they're finding power and they're finding ways to exercise and to practice power. And our responsibility is to not only become literate ourselves, but to circulate this literacy. 
to share it, to ensure that more people become more fluent in democracy. And that might seem on a certain level to be against self-interest. <clears throat> if I get how things work, if I understand how to move and manipulate people and money and ideas and get what I want, why would I want to let anybody else in on this secret? Why would I want to share this inside knowledge? And this is where we come to what Alexis de Tocqueville called self-interest properly understood. Because simply hoarding that knowledge, simply holding that knowledge to yourself might work well for you in the short term, but in the long term, it will lead to the decay of everything else around you in a way that inevitably will redound to your detriment. And this is where I come to the second half of that equation of ours, power plus character equals citizenship. If all you have is a deep fluency in power, you understand this capacity to ensure that others do as you would like them to do. That, by the way, is how I define power. <clears throat> if all you have is that capacity, but it's completely untethered to any moral core, to any set of ethical principles, to any practice of those principles, then all you are is a finely skilled sociopath. And again, we have evidence abounding in Washington right now and around our country of that kind of sociopathy. And so our job is to couple that fluency in power with a grounding in civic character. When I talk about civic character, I wanna be very clear. I mean something different from the way that character is often spoken of in American life. In American life, character is described as, frankly, so much of uh, our experience is described as an individual experience and a matter of individual virtue or vice. Character is discussed whether in our institutions or in our schools, in our professions, as a matter of whether you yourself show perseverance, show grit, show honesty, show diligence, show industry. And yeah, perseverance and grit, they matter. There's not a person uh, in this webinar uh, who didn't get here in part by some measure of perseverance and grit in your lifetime. Uh, but what I'm talking about is not individual virtue, uh, which I think in American life gets overpraised. What I'm talking about is what you might call character in the collective, the ways that we live together, the ways that we must behave to hold together a community, the ways that we behave in public. And so I think one of the first principles of this kind of civic character is, emerges from just what I was saying a moment ago. When you take stock of the power that you have, and I don't care who you are, everybody has some quantum of power. Everybody, even if their bank account is dry, has some ability to mobilize other people. Even if they don't feel comfortable giving speeches in a public square, they have a capacity to mobilize social norms on social media. Even if they don't feel comfortable working on Twitter and Facebook, they may know how to actually call their city council member or their member of Congress or their state legislator to affect some kind of change and some kind of policy. Every one of us has a capacity to affect power. And when you take inventory of the various sources and forms of power that you have, and you take measure of that pile of capital, social capital, intellectual capital, relational capital, money capital, of course, once you look at that pile, you come to a very simple binary choice. Shall I hoard or shall I circulate? And the first principle of civic character is be a circulator. And to be a circulator 
is, as I said a moment ago, not a matter of mere charity or altruism. It is a matter of self-interest properly understood. Because one of the great precepts of civic character is that we're all better off when we're all better off. And that may seem, again, like some woo-woo tautology from a guy who's coming to you live right now from Seattle, New Age land. But no, we're all better off and we're all better off is one of the deepest scientific truths of complex adaptive systems. Let me give you a simple metaphor. In the United States, the wealthiest 1% of us in 1980 accounted for about 8% of national income. In the last few years, the share of, the, of national income going to the top 1% has fluctuated between 20 and 24%. So imagine if 1% of my body, this pinky, for instance, accounted for 24% of my blood supply. Imagine if this pinky was ballooned almost grotesquely to account for a quarter of my blood. My pinky for a while would think, man, life is good. Times are flush. This is awesome. I've never felt so strong in my life. But that feeling wouldn't last long because what the pinky would notice after a while is that it wasn't really able to get itself off the ground. Why? Because the hand it was attached to was feeling weak. And because the arm that it was attached to was drained of blood. And because the body that that arm was attached to was experiencing organ failure and atrophy because no blood was circulating in the rest of that body. And it would dawn upon that pinky, flush as times might have seemed, it would dawn upon that pinky a little too late. Oh my gosh, I am of the body. My fate is not severable from that of the body. And though times felt flush, the body is collapsing and failing and dying. And sooner or later, I am gonna die with it. We're all better off when we're all better off. That's not socialism. That's not a requirement that every cell get an equal quantum of lifeblood, but it is an argument that says the more that our lifeblood circulates, the healthy the body and the body politic becomes, that we can all then thrive. This is the case, by the way, uh, that I used and others used here in Seattle when we made this city the first major city in the United States to adopt a $15 minimum wage. My fellow activists and citizens who were involved in that fight we didn't make the case from charity. We didn't say, hey, it's mean and not nice to pay these people only eight or $9 an hour. It's true that it's mean and not nice, but that wasn't the basis of our argument. The basis of our argument was, listen, when workers have more money, businesses have more customers and the entire ecosystem becomes healthier because you set in motion a positive feedback loop of increasing demand. And we're all better off when we're all better off. When a low-wage worker has their hourly wage go up from 8 to 11, 11 to 15, where do you think they park that surplus? What do you think they do with that extra three, four, five dollars an hour? Do you think they stash it away in an offshore account in the Cayman Islands? No, they spend it. They circulate it into the economy. They decide that they can actually make rent this month. They decide that they can actually get their spouse an anniversary gift. They decide that they will actually this year get back to school clothes for their kids. We're all better off when we're all better off. That idea is central to our notion of civic character. And so is another idea. And that is that society becomes how you behave. Now, this may seem at first glance to be unobjectionable and 
unremarkable, but I want to note how deeply countercultural it is in American life. Because the mythos, the master narrative of American life is rugged individualism, is don't tread on me, is I should be able to do whatever the heck I want as long as I'm not actively harming or killing somebody else. And again, I exaggerate slightly for effect, but only slightly. You need only to look around during a pandemic at all the people who cannot abide the tyranny of expressing the courtesy and mindfulness of others of donning for a short period of time while in public a paper mask. We live in a country that is poisonously, toxically hyper-individualistic. And that hyper-individualism leads us to believe that my actions, whether selfish or not, are just my actions. And they'll get canceled out by the actions of many, many other countless self-seeking individuals. And that magically somehow a million acts of raw selfishness will somehow add up to the common good. That is the background. That is capitalism for dummies, by the way. <laughs> that is American civics for dummies. The idea that everybody gets to be selfish and somehow the common good emerges from that. Mm -mm. If there's one thing that the pandemic is teaching us, and the pandemic is a relentless, unforgiving teacher. I've been thinking of it as Professor COVID, the most hard-ass professor you ever had. Professor COVID is teaching us over and over and over again that every single choice, every single omission of yours is not just your choice and your omission to be canceled out by someone else's more positive choice. Every choice and omission of yours is rapidly, immediately, relentlessly contagious. As contagious as, more contagious than COVID-19. Your decision to be courteous or discourteous, civil or uncivil, to participate or not participate, cynical or hopeful, that these things cascade out immediately and rapidly into a new social norm. And even before the pandemic, this age of social media, this flattening of our communications and kind of collective consciousness had begun to make this reality clearer and clearer to us, but the pandemic makes it indisputable. Society becomes how you behave. And so in our work at Citizen University, we try to teach these notions that we're all better off when we're all better off. The society becomes how you behave. And so be conscious, take responsibility, recognize that you own a piece of the outcome of this. And that ownership is not a burden, it is a blessing. It is a blessing to not have to figure everything else out by yourself, for yourself, relentlessly. People come to church because they are afraid and alone. People come to church because they know they can't figure it out all by themselves. And we at Citizen University, recognizing that same set of impulses, that same set of yearnings and fears, we started creating a program four years ago that we think of as a civic analog to church or to any faith gathering. We call these gatherings Civic Saturdays. They started four days after the 2016 presidential election. And they've been going continuously ever since, not only in our home base in Seattle, but we, uh, we started hearing demand from people all over the country. Hey, can you bring Civic Saturday to our community? And for a while we uh, obliged and we took our uh, format and our template 
uh, two other places. But then we realized, well, that's super not scalable to have me and my team running around the country. And so we created a civic seminary program to start training people, catalytic people from small rural towns in the Midwest and the South, big cities on both coasts, red and blue places to train people to lead their own civic Saturday gatherings and build their own civic congregation, so to speak. When I say these gatherings are a civic analog to a faith gathering, I mean it. They have the flow and the arc and the feeling of a faith gathering, but they're not church or synagogue or mosque. They are gatherings about civic religion, about the American creed, about what we are called to do and how we are called to show up in community to reckon with the gap that I described between our creed and our deeds. In these gatherings, we come together. Pre-pandemic, we would walk into a room and you'd sit down next to a stranger and we'd be invited pretty quickly to talk about a question, a prompt that would cut right past small talk and go to the heart of things. A question like, who are you responsible for? Or what are you afraid of right now? Or who have you failed lately? And from there, there would be poetry. We would all rise and sing together because outside of church and other faith gatherings, Americans don't sing together. And it's a great feeling to vocalize, to feel that collective strength together. And then we would have readings of texts that you might think of as civic scripture, texts drawn from all across the American civic, historical, literary, and artistic traditions. Well-known texts, the obvious ones, Gettysburg, I Have a Dream, and not well-known ones, things that you never have heard of before. And then after those texts are read, there's a civic sermon in which somebody is speaking to try to make sense of this moment and to encourage people to think about how they connect the dots between their doubt and their recommitment to our civic creed. And then people form up in civic circles to take action and commit to each other how as neighbors, how as strangers, we are going to rebuild our community. And so in this program of Civic Saturdays, Civic Seminary, we now are designing a new one that you can think of as a civic confirmation program. We're calling it Citizen Redefined, but really it is a confirmation program in which circles of young people uh, led by an elder, guided by an elder, go through an arc over many weeks of civic spiritual formation uh, that will culminate in a rite of passage in which they show to a community that they have grown up and ascended into the responsibilities of citizenship. This is the way that we've come to it. And this is our particular form and format, our social technology, so to speak. But I invite you wherever you are. Well, first of all, I invite you, if you're interested, to join us. Uh, there are Civic Saturdays going on all around the country in the DC area as well. Uh, but if you're moved enough to want to lead some of these yourselves, join us for a cohort of our Civic Seminary. Uh, we run cohorts pretty much every month and now everything's on Zoom and even the gatherings are on Zoom. Uh, but uh, I, in the first place, I invite you. But in the second place, I emphasize here that what we are doing together, what you're doing at St. John's, what we're doing at Citizen University, is what we've got to get circle after circle after circle of people all around the United States to be doing right now. And that is to be reckoning with our civic faith, to be inviting people, whether they are religious or irreligious, whether they are accustomed to being invited into spaces of gathering and reckoning or not that what we've got to do is to cultivate that capacity for discernment over dogma, for 
seeing shades of gray rather than indulging in the dopamine rush of righteous certitude. And for asking ourselves all the time, what is it beyond merely professing our values that we are called to do? What are we called to do to actually actualize our values? And then to recognize that even in times as consequential as ours, where it seems like all of us are being pushed into the role of spectator, have a seat, turn on MSNBC, turn on Fox News, and watch this show unfold. What's the crazy president going to do today? What are these folks in the Republican or Democratic Party going to do today in this form of combat? Get the popcorn, sit down and watch. We live in a time right now where more than ever we are pushed by our culture to be mere spectators. And we've got to break that habit and invite others to break it with us. We are not spectators. We are participants. We are not mere readers of power. We are writers and authors of power. We are not mere philosophizers about civic character. We are practitioners of character. And I want to close with this simple thought here, that power itself is neither conservative nor liberal. We again, we see that. The exercise of power is open to anybody who wishes to learn how to invite other people into the act of organizing and activating and finding their voice. But if power is neither conservative nor liberal, I would say that character is both conservative and liberal. And what we've got to do as citizens today is to recognize the part of character that is liberal in the sense that it is open, inclusive, welcoming, and the part of it that is conservative in that is it wishes to conserve what is valuable, that it wishes to preserve a core of truth and tradition. And that when we meld power and character, we learn not only to live like citizens, but we empower ourselves to be part of what I believe is in fact underway, even in this time of great crisis. And that is a great civic awakening in our country. I'm so glad to be with you today as we give ourselves the language, the inspiration, and the encouragement and empowerment to be part of this awakening. And I cannot wait to see what we together do for community and country in the days, weeks, and months ahead. Thank you so much. Eric, thank you for such a powerful and moving inspirational talk, and the timing could not be better for it. Thank you so much for being with us. We have, as you would imagine, a number of questions. Let me just start with, with one. Uh, growing up in the 60s as a little kid, civic education was just part of the curriculum for me and, and for everybody of, of my vintage. Should civic education be mandatory? And, and, and how, if you agree with that, should it be done in this pluralistic society of ours? Uh, absolutely, yes. Uh, you know, we, we have to remember um, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, um, who after she left the Supreme Court, um, started something called iCivics.org, which has now become the country's premier uh, online platform for the teaching of civics, uh, uh, both to middle schoolers and now they're, they're expanding to high school uh, students. Um, and Justice O'Connor would always remind us uh, as she got this endeavor off the ground and we've partnered with iCivics uh, deeply over the years, um, that the whole point of free compulsory public education was to make citizens. It was not to make employees. It is not to make good workers, uh, which is what you, the impression that you'd get if you just arrived um, in the United States today from Mars. Um, it was to make citizens capable of self-government, capable of keeping a republic. And so if there's anything public schools should be doing, it is teaching civics. And you're right, Clark, that civics has 
evaporated from so many public schools um, because of an emphasis on STEM in the last couple of decades, because of cutbacks in public education in general, because of, of a lot of reasons. Uh, but to the second part of the question, how should we teach it? Um, I think the way we've got to teach it is to teach it like we as grown-ups are not afraid of civics. So much of the reason why civics gets uh, not just neglected, but kind of put to the side in public education is that many educators are scared of creating a controversy that's gonna get them in trouble. They're, creative, they're scared of teaching about slavery or the legacy of slavery. They're scared of teaching uh, about power and reckoning and protest because they don't want some group of parents or somebody from some cable news network to arrive and say, this teacher is doing something controversial. And we as parents, we as community members have got to make it possible for all of our institutions to reckon with civic life like grownups. Um, the quick thing I'll tell you is that the Asp at the Aspen Institute, at the program that I run there on citizenship and American identity, we've got a program called the Better Arguments Project, which I would commend to all of you, which recognizes that the point of American civic life is not to have fewer arguments. Even in this polarized time, it's okay to have arguments. The point though is to have less stupid arguments. And to have less stupid arguments means a few core things about knowing our history, knowing ourselves, knowing our own emotional capacities and being grownups about that. And so we've created a whole set of templates and trainings that are free um, for people, educators and parents and practitioners in all domains to learn how to have better arguments. And we've got to import that spirit into the way we teach civics. Thank you. Another question from one of our parishioners is, could you tell us which states in your view are doing the best job of educating Americans about citizenship? And how does that education compare to the kind of education that legal immigrants to the country get? Um, <clears throat> I think uh, there are a few states that are doing outstanding work on this. Um, Massachusetts comes to mind uh, immediately. Uh, there is a um, uh, actually one of the leaders, the, the, the executive director of iCivics, which I mentioned a moment ago, is also the catalyst of a nationwide uh, coalition uh, called Civics Now of organizations that are working to revitalize and, and uh, raise the profile of civic education. And, uh, and she's based in Massachusetts. And so Massachusetts has become this great uh, hotbed um, for experimentation um, in uh, better civic education. Um, I had the opportunity over the last couple of years to co-chair a commission of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, which um, those of you who are St. John's parishioners uh, are likely American history buffs and know that the American Academy was formed in 1780 by John Adams and a group of other scholar patriots um, who had faith that though the Revolutionary War was not yet finished, um, that this new nation would in fact be born and that it would require institutions that would disseminate knowledge um, to ensure that a people were capable of self-government. And that institution has existed continuously since 1780. Um, and I co-chaired a commission on uh, the practice of democratic citizenship that the Academy held. And my co-chair, Danielle Allen, who's an incredible scholar and author at Harvard, um, has also been one of the catalysts in Massachusetts' uh, uh, great awakening in civic education there. And so I would refer anybody who's interested to look at what Massachusetts is doing uh, but the second part of the question about how this compares to what um, uh, naturalizing immigrants get, um, it's an ironic question uh, because, uh, you know, naturalizing immigrants, my parents were naturalized immigrants, are naturalized, they were naturalized as immigrants. Um, 
they get very little. Uh, they get exposure to 100 questions that they have to memorize the answers to. Uh, and then as part of their citizenship exam, um, some number, 6, 12 of those questions will be posed to them. Um, and the questions are not, frankly, uh, that hard. Um, how many states? Who was the first president? How many branches of government? Um, but what is ironic about this question um, is that we are finding these days that increasing and kind of a distressing number of Americans cannot actually answer some of those questions that immigrants answer. Uh, that large proportion of Americans cannot actually tell you what the three branches of government are. There's a new member of the United States Congress who uh, got, got himself into a little bit of public embarrassment because he misnamed the three branches of government. Uh, th th this is a, a crisis of civic knowledge. Um, and, and so you see a lot of states now saying that all high school students in order to graduate need to be able to pass the same uh, exam uh, that naturalizing immigrants must pass. Uh, and I look at that and I think that is an incredibly sad low bar. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and the bar for people who've been born and raised, who had people like me and you who had the dumb luck to be born in this country, to be shaped by these institutions, that should not be where the bar is set, right? That's a reasonable bar for people who spent their entire lives in a foreign country and now are American, now are trying to become Americans. But those of us who had the dumb luck to be born here, raised here, to secure and receive the blessings of liberty here, we ought to know more than what's in that exam. We ought to be able to pass a test that's harder than that. And so um, my, my view is that, uh, um, you know, the unfortunate fact is that too many Americans have about as much knowledge as newly arrived immigrants, and that's not okay. And then the final question, Eric, are you going forward, looking five years out, 10 years out, are you optimistic about our ability to come together and to close this gap that you so eloquently talked about between creed and deed or pessimistic? <clears throat> you know, in the first place, um, I avoid the optimism-pessimism frame when I can, um, because I think that both optimism and pessimism involve or imply a certain amount of spectatordom. Um, I I'm born and raised in New York, so I'm a big Yankee fan. I'm optimistic that in 2021, the Yankees are going to win the World Series. Right? <laughs> but whether they do or not has literally nothing to do with anything I do. Right? I'm just sitting back and waiting and watching and I'm just optimistic because optimism is just a disposition that says things are going to work out okay. And frankly, that disposition can actually take you off the hook. I think things are going to be fine. So I'm not going to make any particular effort because things are going to be fine. So the frame that I prefer over optimism, pessimism is simply a frame of hopefulness or not hopefulness because hope implies agency. Hope incurs responsibility, right? Uh, I'm hopeful for something because I have a hand and actually whether that something is gonna to come to pass. Um, and with that frame in mind, I actually am net hopeful over the last, next five, 10 years that we are gonna come out uh, the other side of this painful transition um, with a more robust democracy, with greater participation, with a deep and widespread awakening um, of a sense uh, that citizenship is not just rights, 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 but it's also responsibility, right? that there is no right without responsibility, um, that only toddlers and sociopaths think that you get rights without responsibilities. And I think that we've got to, um, I think that is beginning to arise and emerge. Um, but I say net hopeful uh, because I'm not naive. I'm not blind to all that is broken in our national institutions and our national politics. 
all that is breaking and revealed to have been broken by the pandemic, all the inequality, all of the racial injustice that suffuses every single one of our institutions, not just policing and criminal justice. I'm not blind to any of those things. I'm rather wide awake, uh, but I'm net hopeful because I see a lot of other folks right now who are also awakening. And I don't mean woke, I don't mean like performative wokeness. I mean awakening to their responsibility and awakening to the fact that we're all better off and we're all better off. The society becomes how we behave and that at the end of the day, I'm of the body. So I better show up and start circulating my power in a way that recognizes that I can change the body. Um, I am net hopeful. And part of the reason why, frankly, Clark, um, is people like you, uh, people like Rob and a community like St. John's. Um, and I think all around the country, you know, we got to remember, even in this time where all of our attention goes to the presidency, the president is not the country. The presidency is not the country. The federal government is not the country. We, the people all over this country in communities that are off the grid and don't get as much attention as St. John's in Washington, DC, are just trying to fix stuff, are just trying to figure things out, are just trying to bring people together. And I see that in my work at Citizen University all around the United States. And that gives me hope. Uh, and I hope that all of you who are here today um, will uh, make that hope contagious. Let the people say amen. <laughs> thank you so much, Eric. That was terrific. I can't thank you enough. And uh, everyone, those of you who are interested, please join the website. Please look at the website of Citizen University and sign up to, to participate. Thank you so much, Eric. I look forward to continuing to be in touch. Thank you, Clark. So glad to be with you all. And um, I, I look forward to continuing the conversation in other ways. And truly want to invite all parishioners and everybody viewing and participating today uh, to join our work at Citizen University. Thank you, Clark. Thank you so much.